0: residents adan suneko uh, directs um students and community members in the javanese dance and gamelan orchestra Seen here the ancient mystical traditions for free at hill um events information is brought to you by current magazine ann arbor's entertainment monthly available at many locations around town events info can be heard daily in the morning at 1 4:30, 4 7 30 and 10 30 and also at 1 4:30, and 8 30 in the afternoon right here on wcb and fmin arbor once again thanks for listening to illusion field recordings and stay tuned for living writers the sands of time will wash all of this away. Where will you keep your legacy? On paper that can be burned or crumpled? Computers that can be erased or smashed? Stone tablets that are heavy and cursed? Or human brains so easily shredded by bombs and knives? No. Here, at Knowledge Unlimited, we keep our information. Lost. On the sun. Our trained students use lasers and atoms to inscribe our data directly on the star's protosphere. And because of science, we know that what we put there will remain secure long after time's celestial foot stomps on the cigarette butt of humanity. For good. Find out more. Join us every Friday morning from midnight until 1am on The Equivalent. What's worse than being left behind leaving nothing behind at all.
1: Good you've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today on the program. Ellen Muehlberger is here, um, joining me in the studio. Welcome, Ellen.
2: Thanks, T. Hi. <laughs> I'm Hi. so excited.
1: We're and cue pointer sisters no. <laughs> <laughs> um, And and Ellen is here with her her book um, just out this year with Oxford University Press, Angels in Late Ancient Christianity. Um, Ellen also teaches here at the university, um, and but but you know what? But one thing first. Um, did you wanna? Did you wanna give a little?
2: Uh, <laughs> I just <I'm>, musical introduction. <laughs> I love Bob Mold, and I'm so glad that we got to play him.
1: All the songs today will be Ellen's picks yeah. uh, that are coming. So, um, and before we start uh, the talking to Ellen uh, about this wonderful book, Angels in Late Ancient Ancient Christianity, a, um, a short note of thanks. Um, there are many ways of contributing to Living Writers in WCBN, and thanks to all listeners for making up. Our community here. Um, Thanks to those poets and writers who sent in poems and anti-poems and musical selections for our fundraiser show way back in February now. Um, And actually, uh, Ellen, our guest today, Ellen Muehlberger, had a poem dedicated to her by her partner, Gina, uh, by Margaret Atwood, uh, Habitation. So that might actually be ringing a bell for some of you listeners out there. But right now I'd like to thank those who also called in on that day way back on February 13th, um, to contribute. Um, Jacob Camfield, Liz Wasson, Sally Hetzel, Harry Fried, Louis Cicciarelli, Debbie Tennant, John Hilton, and Stephanie Elliott. And thanks to all of you folks. Um, if, if you also made a contribution online, um, thanks for listening and, and, um, and for being part of this, this community. Um, now let's talk about some angels. <laughs> well, actually, Ellen short bio first. Ellen Muehlberger is assistant professor of Christianity in Late Antiquity in the Near Eastern Studies and History departments at the University of
2: Michigan. Woo! That sounds so official. <laughs> well, what
1: I love about it is it's you're just that's you're just deliver exactly what this is there's nothing nothing um superfluous there ellen i guess but we can fill in some of this right that's what we're gonna do and not that that anything that we say next will be superfluous because my sense of it is is that your acknowledgement section is really wonderful and gives this sense of um kind of the story of the making of the book in a way which which we're going to which you're game for talking about of course yeah because this um your your book um started had its genesis with your dissertation w- which i guess is not that unusual but it's also not a given that dissertations have a life in the world as
2: as books especially such lovely books sometimes as they this. don't and um it was strange to start the project and not know whether it would ever become a thing in the world and it's still a little surreal to have it be a thing sitting on the table in between us that i can touch and open up and um, is it what what makes it surreal ellen like what uh, for well about 10 years now it's either been an idea or a set of files on my computer or a big stack of paper that I printed out and sent to somebody like it's just it has never actually been a thing between covers and now here it sits and I think um, I, I I'm from a small town on the other side of the state and my family you know we grew up and we were reading books and such but there was never a moment where I thought oh I'm gonna be a person whose name is on the spine of the book I I I love to read. I, you know, cultivated different authors that I like to read and that sort of thing, but just never made the leap to thinking of myself as the person who would make one of those things. So it's still, I mean, this has been, I've had like a physical copy for probably a month now, and it still feels very, very weird to hold it in my hands. It's your book. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and quite the book it is. It's such a smart looking book with its Navy oh. cover and the, the angel and... And it's such an amazing press, Oxford University Press. I mean, where don't they have, you know, if you look at the, the, the countries where they're located, um, it's it's so, and I must say, um, this is the first historical study of angels in Christianity. That's what this is, this book.
2: In my specific time period. So there are other scholars working in other time periods, but... Um... With, with, an, with a, the idea of angels, but not mm-hmm. in late antiquity. Right. There have been other books written about angels from a um, religious point of view, or people within the tradition trying to explain beliefs about angels or to make those beliefs fit with other ideas in Christianity. But from a historical or maybe outsider's point of view, this is really kind of the first. And can, can you tell us a bit
1: about how you became, for 10 years, this became... (laughs) Sort of your pursuit. And I guess maybe the research would be a chunk, the earlier chunk of that. And then there's revision and and different parts of the process. But
2: how did it start, Ellen? Um, When I was in school, when I was in graduate school, I studied a bunch of different languages and knew that I needed to find a dissertation project um, and wanted to find one that involved you know, a couple of different languages, not just one author or not just one geographical area, but something a lot wider.
1: And because you were interested in the
2: what's happening between the languages mm-hmm. and the
1: the regions, and
2: yeah, and in my specific area, Greek and Latin are the two main languages that people um, study and that people read sources in. But I also know a couple of other languages, Coptic and Syriac, and they don't get as much attention, partially because they don't have as many readers, but because they don't have as many readers, they don't have as many editions made of texts. So it's just sort of a problem that you have all of this literature that's available to talk about the history of late antiquity, but because not everybody reads it, not everybody reads it. So I wanted something specifically that forced me to use all of those languages. So for example, when you say
1: Coptic, does that mean that 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 became part of your research then, going back to these early early materials and to be the voice of, to bring that into the present conversation. I mean, I don't know if I'm the voice of Coptic literature or the voice of God, (laughs) we were saying earlier.
2: (laughs) But to treat texts that happen to survive in that language the same as texts that people have been studying for years and years and years because they're in a language that more people happen to know, yes, that's what I wanted to do. And um, I, when I got a physical copy of the book, I sent one to my advisor and mentor, the person who trained me, um, whose name is David and who works at a school in Columbus, the name of which shall not be mentioned because we're sitting in Ann Arbor, but everybody knows the school that I'm talking about. David is a um, fantastic person, and I, um, when I was looking around for a project and I said to him specifically, I'm interested in something that would let me kind of use a broad brush and multiple languages, he sent me an email just off the top of his head. He said, you know, I've been thinking about all these various things, and maybe you should do something about angels. And then he said... Um, he suggested other things like, you know, uh, Michael the Archangel is a really big topic in Coptic sermons and all these other sort of sub-ideas. But that one tiny little email, angels, started me thinking about various things. And at the time, it was very cute. He was working on a, a project that's now this fantastic book about demons in monastic culture. So for a while, there was this little moment where I was working on something about angels and my mentor and kind of my you know, academic director was working on something about demons. And um, but, anyways, I I recently got these physical copies of the book in the mail, and I promptly sent one off to him, and I stuck in there a copy of that original email, which I'm sure he had totally forgotten about. But like, um, just to say, look, you know, check this out. Look what happened because you sent me this very very insightful email that said, hey, you should think about angels. And then, poof, ten years later, there is this thing sitting on the table, and it's called a book.
1: That is incredible. So, a shout out to David out there. Yeah. Too. <laughs> And so, what? So, when you got this idea of this angels, like that started turning over in your mind because you could see how it was connecting these pieces that you wanted,
2: right? I could see that it was going to require me to do things in more than just the regular languages, and that it was going to require me to read a whole ton of literature that I had um, to that point not read. You know, like I think as I work on different projects, this is one, but others too. Half of the reason I work on that stuff is to get to read old sources because they're interesting and strange and not like our world at all. Um, so I went off to the library and really started looking through the indices of primary source collections to look and see, well, what texts might I be interested in? what What's already out there? Mm-hmm. Um, and started finding that there were themes in ancient sources, like kind of... Um, the things that became the chapters of this book started out as big, long lists of, I need to read this sermon and this sermon and this sermon because they've got something going on in between them, but I don't know precisely what it is yet.
1: Mm. You don't know, but you could sense. So you could see that there'd be these connections. or
2: That makes it sound really kind of... Um... <laughs> Magical thinking right, or right, so. Right, right, exactly. But it is, it's, <laughs> it, this is true for this book and it's true for other projects that I'm working on. Oftentimes, it will just be like, like a hunch- one... not even a hunch, but like one phrase that, you know, another scholar will be talking about an ancient source and he or she will use a phrase. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why they're using that phrase. And that will direct me to go read the source. And then I'll start thinking, well, all right, I know this other thing over here, you know, this other text that's from another language that has something like that going on. And it feels kind of, um, there's a feeling of Um, it being promising, like something is there, but I can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. And it takes a very long time for me to get from something is there. Gosh, I'm excited to read these things because there's clearly something sparky going on to, I have a full articulated argument with my evidence. Like that is a, that's the longest distance in the world right there. (laughs) But that's because you're making, you're, you're creating new thoughts. You're finding something new. I, I think so. And I think it's it takes a lot of trying it out, send, sending it to someone or saying it to someone, hearing what they have to say back, trying it out again. It almost feels like, um, not that, you know, I know much about linguistics, so please forgive me, the linguists in the audience, of which there are probably many linguists listening to WCBN on, of a Wednesday afternoon. But it feels like when, you know, when babies start to try to imitate language and they don't imitate anything that us, we as adults really know you know we can't tell what they're saying and we think they think they're saying something but we don't know what they're saying it takes them a long time to figure out how to put together words and syntax in a way that other human beings can understand and i feel like as a as a person who's trying to string things together i go through that process like i'm very excited at the beginning when i'm reading something and i think man i've got something to say about this but i have no idea what it is and then i try out a version of it try out a version of it try out a version of it until somebody else responds like oh, I understand the sentence that you're trying to form. And how do you keep the faith with that, then? How do you keep that,
1: like, keep trying? Do you... Partially, because you know that you're onto something, or what do you...
2: At first, I think, the first time that happened to me, um, I was just lucky to live with someone, Gina, my partner, who you mentioned earlier, who was willing to hear me try out my different baby talk sentences for a very long time, um, and who noticed... She is an inveterate writer, so she does a lot of not just her own writing, but also composition education, so composition pedagogy. And I think she recognized it as, oh, well, this is what a writer does, which is something I didn't have a whole lot of um, familiarity with. So she was willing to say, yeah, that that's just how it goes when you're trying out a new argument. This is what's going to happen. And now that has happened enough times to me. So... I start with a seed of a, seed of an idea that I can't even articulate and get out to the very, very end of the timeline and have an article or a chapter or something articulate that I trust now that when the seed comes, I feel it and I know. This is great. And so, thank goodness, because 10 years. 10 it years was 10 years. From that email that David sent to yes. the process of doing the research when I was in graduate school and coming up with a dissertation, which is, you know, its own manuscript, but not the thing that now sits on the table between us. Which we'll talk about. Of we'll course. We'll come back and we'll talk about that today on Living Writers. Ellen
1: Muehlberger is here. Her book, book Angels in Late Ancient Christianity. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Greg in the engineering booth. We'll be right back. This is really cool. You're just doing it. You're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> back if you're just tuning in i'm glad you did today ellen Muhlberger is here in the studio her book angels in late ancient christianity um
2: ellen thanks for being here i'm again. so excited again to be here like it's <laughs> this is a blast
1: <laughs> and we've only just begun yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we last before we took this short break um you were saying how the dissertation was like a big part of this this process um but that it's not the book you see before you. True. Um, so can you tell True. us a
2: little bit about yeah what what happened to make it this book we see before us? Oh my goodness! Well, um, when I finished my dissertation, as dissertations go, you know, people get very excited. You actually get a degree based on that. So there's a lot of reason to think that that is a nice stopping point or a terminal point. Um, but I had good coaching from my my friend that I've mentioned who teaches at the school in Columbus, David, and from others, that that wasn't the stopping point, and that there was a lot of development that could be done, but that they didn't know what that development was for me. So I, I um, had the gift of having readers who were happy and trusting and optimistic about my ability to figure out what was happening, what was going to happen next, and weren't directive about it, which was fantastic. Who were these readers then, Ellen? Because once you go, go away from, did you is it a support
1: system you're leaving once you've got the dissertation finished or who were these or were the same readers part of so your committee,
2: or David was part of that um, but some of the other in fact some of the folks who ended up on the back of the book um, you know I would meet other people at conferences who heard arguments that I had presented in papers or who would agree to read a chapter or two and a lot of those folks They would point to the same feeling that I was having, which was, this is headed somewhere, you are going to figure out where this is headed, and just generally gave encouragement. They of course gave a lot of other feedback too, but um, my discipline in general, late ancient studies or early Christianity, is a really generous discipline. The culture among the people at different schools and in different positions is one of generosity and encouragement. Um, which I realize doesn't happen everywhere. I'm sort of spoiled because I have this lovely, fantastic um, network of people. So many of those folks said, oh, well, gosh, you should you should try out this press or this press or another press. Um, and I went through the process of preparing a new manuscript to send to a press. So... Um, I rethought what had happened in the dissertation and thought about the places where it didn't quite seem like a full story. You know that it had, it had had points that I hit, but I didn't quite tag those points together. And then, um, I and were these were they chapters at that point, Ellen? Would you
1: say like, does, does the structure of the book sort of did they have these pieces, and you were you were thinking of a new way to to tell the story? Yeah.
2: So it. Several of the things that you would see in the book that's sitting between us were um, less developed. They it was it, they came from less developed versions of themselves in the dissertation. Um, but if if I had to characterize the project when I finished it for my dissertation, it was a set of vignettes. So five or six chapters that were scenes, but not all strung together. And um, the first round of revision that I went through to prepare it, to send it to a press, I tried really hard to string all of those together. And does that mean connective tissue when you're saying the string? Or what's the string? The string is an overall claim. You okay. know, so I, I mean, what is the argument of the book? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You know, and people talk about that different ways. They'll say, what's the thread that runs through all of these chapters, or what's the string that, or what's the narrative? People will even use narrative words like, or words like narrative to talk about that. But really, they meant, why does this have to be one big thing, rather than five lovely, interesting, but not strung together chapters? Yes. And I, um, in that first round, I worked with a press um, and got multiple readers' reports back from that press including reports from people who were involved in the series that I was thinking about being with, and um, that process, not only did I get some pretty, you know, sort of intense feedback, but also the press and I, at one point, decided that mutually we just weren't thinking the same thing for the book. So, um, between dissertation and this lovely object that sits between us right now, T, there was um, my interactions with not just Oxford, but another press before that, um, which was really, you know, brand new first time author was a uh, disheartening situation. I think anybody, you know, when you get your manuscript and you love it and you, you want somebody to say, yes, this is of course the second coming of all writing that has ever happened. And they don't say that. That's, that's a difficult situation. And, um, did they want you to make changes
1: that you weren't willing, like you didn't think were authentic to your project? Is that why you had
2: to, they had a different idea of what the next step for the book needed to be. So, um, or you know, different ideas than what I had, and I thought, you know, this might be a moment where we mutually part ways. And they said, "Yep, that's exactly what it is." So, it was a, it was a, um, it was not acrimonious. It was not you know negative. It was just like, gosh, we have different ideas about what this needs to be, and it was um, frightening. You know, as probably many of your listeners know, um, one of the large parts about being an assistant professor, as I'm identified on the back flap of the book, is that. Um, your job security is tied to producing a book, so me saying to a press, "You want me to do this, but no, I don't want to do that," that's was a frightening moment. And that's really brave. I it, it wasn't even it didn't feel brave when I did it because you it just felt, had to do it. It it felt like, gosh, that's just not what I'm ready to do. I didn't know if it was um, if that was the right decision to make at that point. And indeed, that winter, I um, spent a lot of time just thinking, "Gosh, maybe I should have," you know gone with how the press wanted it to be. It turned out okay in the end, but more than okay. <laughs> I think it's cuz you believed in the book. Like at that point, you knew enough.
1: Like what you what you were talking about earlier, what you were trying to describe Ellen, maybe the seed. Like you you believed in enough to know that this it had to be itself even if you were still discovering parts of it or shaping parts of it, it sounds like.
2: I feel as if belief might be too strong of a word for the feelings I had at that moment, (laughs) in that it feels too confident. You know, um, it's easy to look back and say, oh, I believed that this would always become this lovely, lovely book. But at the time, no, I really, I just didn't know. And I think, um, you know, lucky is the writer who never gets to that point where the press, where either it's just flat out rejection or you know, mutual separation or whatever you would call that, mutual divorce, I guess. Um, but I don't know a whole lot of people who have that, that experience. I know a lot of people who go through multiple situations, not just with readers that they solicit, you know, just one person at a time, but formal readers' reports or readers' reviews, whether it's a book of, um, you know, a creative work of creative nonfiction or regular fiction poetry or academic work most of the people I know who have something published man it was a long haul (laughs) so uh, with so there were some sort of dark days
1: there a little bit of questioning you know your own where you were going with it a bit how did you did you what was the the next key to that got you
2: working on it again or revisit, take being with it again? There were, I mean, it was almost immediate because some of the feedback I got from that first round, that first dance with a press, um, was actually really good feedback, and it was along the lines of this yet doesn't have a narrative, it doesn't have a thread, or it doesn't have an argument that takes it from vignettes to book. And looking back, perfectly um, accurate and totally spot-on description of the manuscript that I had at that time, And I think two things happen. First, um, a friend of mine over in Kalamazoo at Kalamazoo College hosts a writing workshop for um, other people who work on early Christianity and late antiquity in and around the state. So shout out to Taylor. I don't know if he's listening, but he's fantastic. And at that meeting, I was talking to a friend of mine, Candida, who works down in South Bend. And she said, well, I'm sorry that you've had that experience with that press, but my editor at Oxford is this fantastic person, and I think that she would be very interested in this book. So it was really the intervention of just a kind person who thought, Ellen, you may not think that you can do this, but I think you can do this, and I know somebody who can help you do it. And the editor at Oxford was – she was not – She was not falsely encouraging or falsely reassuring. She didn't just welcome me with open arms and say, yes, of course, we'll do this. But she was extremely professional. She recognized that I was a first time author and explained the steps very clearly of what I needed to do. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. So that was thing one, was Canada from South Bend suggesting her editor and pointing me in the direction of Oxford, which turned out to be the right place to go. And what was? Oh, thing two. I think it was you, actually, or perhaps Lewis, or perhaps Gina, who suggested this book to me. So T and I have on the table between us a second book. Here's my <laughs> lovely book, but s- sitting next to us also is um, the Half Known World by Robert Boswell. The Bos. He has a nickname. Yeah. He's that much a friend of the show. <laughs> yes, yeah, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think that you had mentioned this book to me, and I thought, you know, I often get a lot out of reading. People, I, I tend not to see a, a difference between creative writing and academic writing. I mean, yes, we're doing slightly different kinds of things, and there are different generic expectations. Um, and, you know, of course, creative writers don't necessarily have to be true to sources, but they can be. But I, I get a lot out of reading creative writers talking about their process, because I think that there's not a lot that separates the writing of something like a historical book and the writing of something like a novel. Um, So after you mentioned this book to me, I went and got it and devoured it that winter. This was a couple of winters ago. Um, And I just thought, you know, one of the things that happens in that book, which I love, and it's part of the title, is that he suggests to novelists that they not tell the whole story of the world that they're trying to represent. Not only that they not make things explicit in the way that like a film or a visual medium might, but also that they imagine their characters in a way that they Don't use every last detail that they've imagined to hand it over to the reader so that every character has sort of um, kind of a part of them that doesn't exist in the novel and that makes them wider when the reader does see the parts that do exist. And that helped me think, oh, right, what I'm trying to do is represent a time period and a culture that is far, far stranger than our world. I can say more about that in a moment but
1: well okay well well let's well let's take a short break and then we'll come back and don't lose the thread I will or the not. string of course. or the narrative <laughs> please Ellen Muehlberger is here her book Angels in Late Ancient Christianity um you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor we'll be right back Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Ellen Muehlberger is here in the studio. Her book, Angels in Late Ancient Christianity, out this year with Oxford University Press. Um, Ellen Ellen picked a, a song
2: for Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. It, it's kind of a wonderful accident. Uh, I picked this song by Lyle Lovett up in Indiana to mention the fact that this book had its birth in indiana i was in bloomington when i was writing my dissertation and um greg actually played a different song from the same cd but it's a fantastic song (laughs) Uh, it's called um i think the title is i either i will rise up or rise up and um it brings back memories of a time when i saw lyle lovett and his big band at meyer gardens in um, grand rapids with a couple of friends a good friend of mine from high school nancy shout out to nancy um and it was it was one of those beautiful beautiful kind of mid-michigan summer nights slightly cold crisp gorgeous sky just turning from blue to pink and that song um every last person in the big band eventually joins in and it's just this raucous beautiful amazing song so i was glad for it
1: ah oh. yeah <laughs> And I see now you and everyone out there, you're going to get a chance to hear Ellen now read um, from from her book, but you can see that you would have no problem with creating these scenes and these images (laughs) just by that description of being at that particular concert. Oh my goodness! Yeah, well, really. I mean, I was there. I was hearing it. <laughs> um, we actually—it's—it's. Um, it's, this is—we we actually have an email from a listener, um, Amy Kackery in Naperville, Illinois, um, writes in with a question. Um, Amy writes, um, and and in full disclosure, Amy is is. Um, Gina's sister, so she is. A, a, She's my a, sister-in-law. And
2: sister-in-law, um, but I promise I did not plant this question. She actually. No, this was definitely. I'm nervous about this question, even. This.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Okay, well, okay, well, there you go. So this Amy writes: I want to ask about Chapter Three, specifically Socrates and the discussion of his divine sign. I like how Ellen talks about how Socrates is discussed and defended by Plato and then Plutarch for having his special gift or voice described as a divine sign. It seems like when we think of contemporary people like mediums having the gift, it's dismissed or seen in a much more satirical light. A handy example is Tangina, the powerful medium in the movie Poltergeist. Can you talk about the ways cultural reaction
2: to the idea of gift have changed? This house is clean, Tangina says in that movie. It's a fantastic scene. Um, I can, actually. And part of the reason that I included the um, section that Amy's talking about in Chapter 3 was to say this person that if you've heard of an ancient philosopher, you've probably heard of Socrates, right? He, um, he's famous for being this extremely rational person. But even in the accounts of his life from antiquity, people talk about him being guided by something that's not subject to rationality and he you know he says that he had a sign that tells him what not to do it doesn't tell him positively what to do but it at least directs him away from things and in that chapter I tie that tradition that a person who's extremely good at philosophy might have some sort of divine guidance to the tradition that develops in early Christianity that if you are particularly good at ascetic lifestyles that is Um, a regimented discipline system of praying and meditating or contemplating, sometimes involving um, renunciation of food or sexual relationships or social relationships, that you too can get a divine guide. Um, The ancient sources talk about that thing as a spirit or um, an angel or a power. Um, Sometimes they, they talk about it being a holy spirit, but it's not the capital H, capital S, Holy Spirit that later Christian tradition will start to talk about. It's really something that is more internal to someone, yet it, it keeps a certain independence. So it's not like we might think in modern terms like of conscience or something like that. It's not subject to one's control. It is an external helper that also happens to talk to you in your mind and help you with whatever discipline you're working on. So, I wanted to tie that to this very famous and well recognized philosopher who's supposed to be you know separate from the emotions and so rational you're you know but he but he's guided by something that he doesn't control yeah, that's a beautiful thing it's- fa- it's fantastic and it's weird that's the other thing is that it's really strange and it's um Part of the job that I had to do here was that when I, you know, when I'd be talking to people about the work I was doing before it became a book, you know, I'm working on this manuscript, it's about angels, people would say back to me, oh, well, I know about this angelology or this angelology, like a fancy term for a catalog of angels, and I wanted to avoid at all costs writing something like that because I wasn't interested in pinning every last thing down or making an extensive catalog that explained every last instance, because I think that at least the sources that I'm reading that are ancient describe a world that is very strange and really, really um, differently inhabited than the world that you, T, and I live in. It it involves things that visit us and tell us what not to do, even the philosophers among us. It involves um, choirs of things that are visible to some people and are invisible to other people. It involves human beings who start to look like angels or other spiritual beings. So it's a, I keep saying the word weird or strange, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in an intriguing way. Like yes, well, you know, you can see that that's the thing that that drives you forward with
1: this. I, I think it, it's, this um, is what, and this and why you also were attracted to this idea of the half-known world that you mentioned, and um, the in the last quarter of the show,
2: Ellen. in part because, especially, I mean, any historian. Is subject to this but a historian of a religious tradition is doubly subject to this because of the mysteries involved well and there is for everything that I write in this book there is a community that claims these sources as their own and um, or at least claims these sources as things from the past that they have the proper interpretation of so uh, in that same chapter where I'm talking about divine guides there's a writer his name is Evagrius. um who, after, long after his death, is declared a heretic. And a lot of his stuff, though he wrote in Greek, doesn't survive in Greek because those books were either not copied or they were destroyed. And somebody looking back at the tradition from within Christianity would say, well, I don't know why you would care about what Evagrius thought or did because he's not part of our tradition. But for me, he was... Um, not just an important intellectual in his own time, but an influential and creative thinker who represents one kind of Christianity. And, you know, to be fair to him, he didn't know that he was going to turn out to be a heretic a century after he died. He he thought <laughs> who, he was at the center know? of Christianity, right? Like, So if I'm going to represent, say, fourth century Christianity, I have to represent him. And that is um, sometimes in tension with the, the story that a religious tradition will tell about itself because... If you think, you know, Christianity or other religious traditions, they are in the business of interpreting the past and telling you an interpretation of the past and agreeing as a community on one interpretation of the past. And um, I think my my job as a historian is sometimes to make that stranger to sort of open that up a little bit and say, well, it may have been more um, ramified and a little more diverse than that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> can, we, can we hear yeah, some about Ellen, will you, you read? Read. This is actually from that chapter that Amy was talking about. um, And I have this little section about Socrates and the kinds of things that are reported that he said about his divine sign. So to understand how the tradition of the divine guide developed in Christian ascetic circles, we need to look back, improbably, to classical Athens and its most famous criminal, Socrates. Socrates was placed on trial in 399 BCE having been charged with corrupting the young men of the city by asking irreligious questions. The charge was likely motivated by a general sense of exasperation, for while Socrates was famous and revered as a teacher, he was not known for his tact. (laughs) His method was to examine students persistently, calling into question even the most basic of social assumptions and striving to prod Athenians toward more rational behavior one might imagine that Socrates' interest in the moral health of the Athenian public would have led him to politics, but that never happened. It was not his lack of tact, though, that kept him out of public life. Instead, something else intervened. As Socrates explained, and I should say that what I'm about to read is from an excellent translation by Thomas Brickhouse and Nicholas Smith um, of Plato's Apology, so this is a report about Socrates. Perhaps it would seem odd that Socrates says that I go around giving people advice in private and sticking my nose into other people's business, but don't dare step up and give the city advice about your concerns in public. The reason for this is one you've often heard me give in many places, namely something divine and spiritual comes to me. It's come to me since childhood, this voice, and whenever it comes, it always turns me away from what I'm about to do, but never turns me toward anything. This is what opposes my engaging in politics, and I think it's wonderful that it's done so. (laughs) Socrates was prevented from entering public life by the intervention of a voice, something divine that steered him away from harm. His follower Plato later described the voice as rare, available to only what he called a small remnant of people who consort worthily with philosophy. Among even that select group though, those who have tasted the sweetness and blessedness of philosophy, not everyone has a guide. That divine divine sign had been given to few or none before Socrates. So from Plato's descriptions, it's clear that Socrates' sign was considered the mark of an advanced philosopher, something granted to the person willing to dedicate himself to the restrictions of the philosophical life in order to gain the sweetness that such a life holds in promise. Thank you. You're Thank welcome.
1: You. That was so, good. that was that was
2: lovely. It was great to have Socrates' voice come <laughs> out as well. <laughs> well, you know, he is um, that voice is reported by one of his students. So he's always not just at a remove because it's, you know, ancient Greece and it's in a text and we can't, you know, hear him or see him, but it's also because it's reported through a f- sometimes fawning but sometimes critical student. But even that, you can see that people are struggling with the idea that this rational, exalted teacher also happens to hear voices in the same way that, say, Tangina in the middle of Poltergeist hears voices or other people who aren't characters um, in films or stories hear voices. And Amy, I think her question is fantastic because it points out that we have a way of parsing or judging people who hear voices um, when we have other examples from our own culture that, have extremely learned, extremely intellectual people hearing voices too and avoiding actions because of them. Yes. And then have been lauded and, and
1: stay within yeah. our, our, our world history. Yeah. But we all have to know. It sounds also like it makes him almost seem like he's, he's a transitional being. Like, would it be a, a vagrious like who was saying that there's the, you know, the tears, like the angels, the, the human, the demons, and that, you know, every, no one's static you know, it's everyone's in the shifting world of divine beings. And it almost seems like
2: Socrates then may have been part of that same tradition, right? (laughs) Like, um, immediately after Socrates and his student, um, in the centuries that followed, there was a lot of negotiation about what it meant for Socrates to have a divine sign. And that negotiation suggests that lots and lots of people thought it was strange that he was a shifty being or that mm. might that he might have been something that changed or shifted. Um, I mention that because Avagrius, this person we had been talking about earlier, he just assumed that human beings, angels, and demons could shift in some fashion, um, that we were all of a class of rational beings. We all had something rational about us. We had this thing called the mind or maybe in, in Greek the noose. And that's what made us all one group of people. But we differed in the amount that we were able to control the other parts of ourselves or other um, kind of realities of ourselves, including things that I think modern people might call the emotions or desire or um, other kinds of things that aren't quite so rational. For a vacuous, you really could expect over time to change your constitution based on the practices and really the thoughts that you allowed to happen. Um, And that shiftiness seems to be something that um, he and others like him espoused as just a normal part of Christianity, right? Like, why wouldn't you participate in a tradition where you could really change yourself? And and perhaps shift closer to, in his mind, God. Yeah, yeah. To work yourself sort of up a hierarchy of beings that were more and more rational until you arrived at this highest rationality. And angels were between human beings and God. Not as mediators, but just rather an example of something that was more intensely rational. and But still had their own agency mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. For a vigorous, yes. So angels weren't just acting at the will of God. Um, and that's really different than, say, probably, you know, some of your listeners may have heard of Augustine or had, you know, been forced to read the Confessions at some point. You know, like that's a typical piece of literature that people will read. Augustine... Um, Alive, uh, not exactly contemporaries, but alive during the same time period as Evagrius, totally different part of the world. Um, He thought that angels were agentless beings that just existed to fulfill the will of God. And that's a really different model of Christianity. Like if you start thinking God is the only thing that has agency, humans and angels, not so much. Um, All of a sudden, the purpose of being Christian or participating in that tradition shifts from changing one's constitution to participating in something and aligning the, oneself with the will of something bigger. To in favor, so rather than... Or just, um, it, it requires a lot less agency on the part of the person, you know, it, and it changes what you think person, that concept is, right? Like, so for a Vagris, a person was a shifting rational being who had the, the job and the goal of Bettering or you know shifting his constitution toward something more rational, for Augustine, person meant something totally different, and it didn't involve that responsibility and opportunity to shift oneself. We're going to take a short break and be right
1: back um, to hear more. Ellen Muehlberger is here. Her book, Angels in Late Ancient Christianity. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back.
3: Somebody dropped a nickel on his star Just east of Wilcox on the boulevard Shining some famous dead man's name With my paces Preaching my heart out In the marketplace of faces There is a better way to live So goes the speech God is my...
1: Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today. Ellen Muhlberger is here. Um, we've got on the table before us Ellen's book angels in late ancient Christianity out this year with Oxford university press. Um, Ellen, will you um, thank you for reading? For oh, us. And, gosh, you're welcome. And um, so so there's the the scuttlebutt is that you've got, you've got an axe to grind. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: do have an axe to grind. Tell us about it. Um, when I told people that I was working on a book about angels, I got almost the same response from a pretty high percentage of people. Folks would say, oh, well, angels are so good to think. And that just got under my skin because the entire purpose of this book is to say angels are not separate from other parts of culture. They're not like a set of thought experiments about humanity. They're not even about humanity. They are something that Christians, early Christians thought were just a part of the world and they were real. And I have a little section actually to read about that if that's okay. Please. So if there is an axe to grind, <laughs> here it is. <laughs> I um, In the lead up to this, I had just been explaining why I how angels are real to early Christians. And so, remembering that angels are real and therefore operational in the world of late ancient Christianity can help avoid another pitfall, namely, assuming that angels are a symbolic system by which Christians theorize about other things. In the past, some historians and theorists of culture have understood cultural systems by considering the function of their parts. This is a fruitful approach in many ways, especially because it allows investigators to suspend judgment about the reality of cultural phenomena under study that seem strange or unbelievable to them, especially when those phenomena are part of a culture distant from their own. While functionalism has fallen out of favor as a scholarly approach, one element from the heyday of functionalist studies still persists, the idea that some cultural systems or cultural products exist because they are, quote, good to think. The phrase originated with Claude Lévi-Strauss' study of totem animals, in which he said some species of animals are good to eat, but others are good to think. Anthropologists responding to and expanding levi strausss work popularized that idea, popularized that idea, and as ethnographic models took hold across the humanities, good to think flourished as an idea with strong but implicit explanatory power. It's use naturalized foreign cultural systems by subsuming them under an intuitive banner. Some part of another culture may not be indisputably real to scholarly observers or immediately sensible to them as a choice for cultural expression, but at least it must be good to think, a good way to work out the problems facing a culture in elaborate but risk-free thought experiments. At first glance, Angels in late ancient Christianity seem perfectly germane to this peculiar way of parsing a distant culture. As we'll see, angels were thought to be very close to humanity, yet not at all like humanity, and thus would seem to be fitting subjects for these kinds of thought experiments about what it's like to be human. But I would argue that saying angels in late antiquity are good to think is uncritical and, worse, misleading. The phrase suggests a utilitarian motive behind the maintenance of the cultural systems to which it is applied. Religious adherents are using angels or animals or women or whatever categories the investigating scholar seems to think are good to think as a theoretical practice field for something else, which is those people's actual concern. There are several problems with this approach, (laughs) First, it allows the scholar to divide the culture under study into parts, and to separate out those things that are good to think from other concepts, as if those other concepts were not themselves also cultural constructions. Second, if whatever is good to think symbolically reproduces another set of problems, then it cannot be the origin of new thought or new ideas, whether harmonious or discordant, constructive or destructive to the culture from which it came. So in this book, I examine the ways that various ideas of angels inflected and changed other developing Christian cultural forms, including those things that we assume are central to understanding late ancient Christian culture, scripture and the rules for reading it, ascetic movements, and the emerging network of public leaders. For these reasons, good to think as a phrase is a scholarly tool that's not particularly useful in understanding angels. And for one more angels in the time of the turn to Christian majority in late antiquity were very often quite disturbing for Christians to think, in that they altered the discourses of which they were a part in unpredictable and creative ways. That's like three cheers for the angels, (laughs) you know? They're messy. And they're, they're a central part of culture. They're not something else. They're not a set of symbols or a little side intellectual chess game that people are just thinking through some human problems, they really do intervene and operate in culture in all the ways that other concepts do, like God or priest or person or Christian. All of those things are constructed and they're all mutually interdependent. So it's not as if you can just write about angels separate from Christian culture. You have to write about them as a part of Christian culture, as inherent to it, even constitutive of it. Because that other way, that good to think, makes it diminishes, it or right. so. Oh, they're or just...
1: Compartmentalizes it away.
2: The reason they have these ideas about angels is because it's a good system to think through the problems. So when you talk about an angel delivering a message, it's really you working out the problems of communication. No, it's about an angel delivering a message, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a good way. And it, this brings me back to the Boswell book. Like, he asks writers of creative fiction, you know creative writers to not introduce characters just to hold an idea or just to hold a place, but to let them be the characters that they are. And in that same way, I think angels simply are a part of Christian culture. They're not there to represent something else or to be a symbol or even to be an experiment. They're not separable from it.
1: And that reminds me of this moment in the book, Ellen, where you say, I think it's with Augustine, uh, Augustine. where you think not? You don't use this phrase, but he doth protest too much, <laughs> as if he's not he's not able to really think through or talk through some of these um, like ideas regarding angels.
2: Yeah, that actually that's a theme that got me really interested early on in my research. I found him, Augustine, um, a couple of other people like Gregory of Nazianzus, extremely par- very smart people saying things like, "I can't possibly understand angels." And I thought, what's going on? So i mean, curious. It is curious. And it, it, it was a little signal. It was like a little smoke signal to me that said there is something going on there. I don't know what it is yet. It took me a decade to figure out what it was. <laughs> but it, um, it's that kind of thing that makes me, you know, kind of prick up my ear and think I need to listen to what this person is saying. Because something more than just straightforward indicative sentences are coming out of his mouth. Because of also knowing that, um,
1: for example, he's a rhetorician, right? So so he was saying he wouldn't have said
2: it unless there was some purpose, right right. And I mean, he is a the particular person, Gregory of Nancyanzas, is an inveterate constructor of a self persona. I have um an extremely good friend, Brad, that I went through graduate school with who's working on a project, a book project about Gregory and other letter writers in antiquity, their self-presentation. So Brad is just one of a vanguard of people who are paying a lot of attention to the, mm-hmm. to the really rhetorically well-developed ways that ancient writers presented themselves. Like a created persona on the page. Yeah, yeah. And send that persona out to the world, um, that sometimes sick, sometimes suffering, sometimes emotionally um, distraught persona, which may or may not match the physical person writing the letter, but it does create that person in absentia for the person who receives the letter.
1: And does work necessary work. Yeah, it's within.
2: cultural work to get to get a letter from someone who says, "I'm a suffering, sick person, and you need to now listen to the things that I tell you because I'm suffering." That the the suffering there, as represented, does cultural work. It gets you to do something. Well, well kind of g- going from suffering here. Yeah.
1: you're <laughs> I noticed that you uh, the, um, that your next project maybe the way notions of death changed in the Christian imagination. During
2: late... Antiquity, Slightly darker than angels.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Bring on the shades. Right. (laughs) So, Ellen, tell us a little bit about this. Is this the project you're working on?
2: It is. And I got started on it because, like angels, that moment right before death is something that nobody can point to and say, here's the physical reality of it. It's totally culturally constructed, totally a project of the imagination. And um, something that I think really is different about the fourth and fifth century of Christianity is that people start paying attention to just normal human beings and their moments before death and how frightening it is for them. they construct it as frightening and terrifying and life-changing and a moment of repentance something that's really quite different than how death was taken even in the century before that.
1: And it's so it's interesting how you say this the the imagination um, here uh, using that word Ellen, because it's it's as if we're creating as each individual another half-known
2: world in these moments of our own living. Indeed. And sometimes I despair that I will ever communicate to anyone else what my little world over here is like. Um, You know, as I work out different versions of books or chapters or arguments, I'm always trying to figure out a way to say, look, this is how it is over here. This is where I'm seeing things. But um, I think that we all, to be pessimistic for a moment, I think we all live in slightly not known worlds. I don't even know if half is Half might be too optimistic. Maybe we know, live in quarter-known worlds. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: but and thank, but in a way, thank goodness for that. Like some of the um, the strangeness and the curiosities and the mysteries and the angels and these ideas that you've been um, that you've been talking about today, Ellen, and that
2: are in your book, Angels in Late Ancient Christianity. I've been so grateful to be here. This has been a blast. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. Come back anytime. (laughs) Yes, of course.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to Ellen Muehlberger, her book, Angels in Late Ancient Christianity, out now from Oxford University Press. You've been listening to Living Writers. Um, Thanks again to Greg for engineering. Thanks to all you out there listening. Many, many thanks to Ellen Muehlberger. I'm T Hetzel. Until next time. (laughs) <laughs> you're a rock awesome. star
2: <laughs> Super that score awesome. Oh yeah. Really okay, you're I'm that so glad
3: like the Billy Ray was a preacher's son And when his daddy would visit, he come along When they gather around and started talking That's when Billy would take me a walking Out through the backyard we go walking Then he'd look into my eyes Lord knows to my surprise The only one who could ever reach me Was the son of a preacher man Only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man.
0: This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, March 20th, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Iraqis describe a legacy of sectarian attacks and a lack of basic infrastructure for residents. Others call for accountability for U.S. politicians who led the war. U.S. lawmakers call for changes to policy on Syria as violence continues. And human rights advocates push nations at the U.N. to agree on an arms trade treaty.
3: Those stories.